everyone. I'm Patricia Duff, and welcome to The Common Good. Violent extremism has become one of the most concerning issues facing our country today, and it is driven in large measure by a growing trend in hate speech and the threat of violence based in bigotry. Hate and the violence that follows it is becoming normalized, and it is dividing our nation. Our own national survey on division by the common good has revealed that divisions percolating in the U.S. are really a problem. We found that a third of Americans now believe that political violence is at least sometimes justified. 43% of Americans believe a civil war is likely. We need to change these trends toward extremism and political violence, and our guest today is helping make that happen. For this episode of our TCG podcast, we are extremely honored to welcome one of the top experts at the front lines of this fight, Jonathan Greenblatt. Greenblatt is CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, and he has been responsible for reinvigorating it to track and more actively combat hate and hate-related violence with a focus on anti-Semitism, but arrayed against bigotry, whether it is based on religion, ethnicity, race, sexual orientation, or gender. Please welcome Jonathan Greenblatt. The pleasure is all mine. I'm glad to be here and excited to get into the conversation, Patricia. So thank you. Great to have you, Jonathan. Well, how serious is this uh, growing level of extremism and violence in the U.S. today? What What are your statistics on this phenomenon? Well, you know, ADL is the oldest anti-hate organization in America. It was founded in 1913 in the wake of the Leo Frank trial. That's a very notorious moment in American history when a Jewish man was falsely accused of a crime in the South, wrongly convicted and ultimately hung from a tree. And ADL was created, you know, in that moment when discrimination, Jews suffered from what we might call systemic discrimination and rampant anti-Semitism and slander. And in the decades since, whether it was fighting Nazi sympathizers in America, KKK members, Islamist extremists, QAnon enthusiasts, we continue to find ourselves on the front line in fighting extremism and hate. And indeed, I worry a great deal about where we are as a country right now, because extremism is indisputably on the rise in ways we have not seen in recent memory. So there are a number of different statistics that bear this out. Number one, uh, certainly the rise of anti-Semitism, which is sometimes called the oldest hatred, Patricia, but it really is, um, it starts with the Jews, but it never ends with the Jews. It's almost always a harbinger of more forms of hate. And anti-Semitism has reached record numbers in the United States. We've been tracking this kind of data, acts of harassment, vandalism, and violence for almost 45 years. 2021 was the highest total we've ever tracked, nearly triple the number that we had in 2015. So as one data point, there's an empirical reality, which is there are more anti-Jewish acts of bullying, of discrimination, of prejudice, of assault, I mean, of you know graffiti and vandalism than we've ever seen before. Number two, we have an extraordinary um, sort of normalization of extremism in public life, in particular in the political sphere. This is certainly exemplified by 
the ascent of groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, which in many ways culminated with January the 6th. But unlike, say, the, uh, the explosion of the Alpha Murrow Federal Building in 1994 that was met by widespread condemnation across the spectrum, there has actually been some who would legitimize what happened on January the 6th. Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from Georgia, made a comment recently. She's saying if she had been in charge, if she and Steve Bannon had been in charge of that incident, they would have brought guns and they would have won. I mean, we're talking about assault, the, the, the assault, the coordinated assault on our nation's capital, the physical uh, attacks on the police protecting the building, and the effort to kidnap and kill legislators. That's what she says they want, they would have been successful with. Even if in some bizarre world that was intended as a joke, there's nothing remotely funny about that. And yet, if you look at the data, the survey suggests that a plurality of Americans, by the way, on both sides of the spectrum, believe that violence or political violence, violence in the pursuit of political ambitions, is actually a reasonable activity. I mean, that is crazy. And then, so in addition to the, the rise of anti-Semitism and what it says about society, in addition to the polling about the attitudes of political violence on the right and the left, and the emergence of extremist voices like in the, in the US Congress. I think the third thing that's really scary is how this extremism has drizzled down into the mainstream and literally just now become part of the, again, the public conversation. So last, uh, or in October, the ADL released an analysis of 38,000 names who are on the Oath Keepers membership rolls. Some of my analysts were able to get their hands on it. Patricia, we found active and retired law enforcement, active and retired, thousands of active and retired military, uh, active and retired people in elected office, EMTs, teachers. I mean, people across all segments of public life who are supposed to be there protecting you know, the public good and instead were there pursuing like calamity and chaos. So, and by the way, we also have like hardened anti-Zionists from the far left who are again, trying to infiltrate different spaces to spread their toxic views. So whether it's on the right or the left, those who believe that they can use violence to achieve their ends, those who are trying to poison public spaces with like insurrectionist ideals, with hateful ideals, it's very frightening. Well, you've certainly laid out an extremely frightening scenario, um, but let's drill down on what you think is causing it. Now, you're saying that it's elected leaders um, or leaders in in or public servants and people in in in, in positions of responsibility going to this side. What? draws people to the dark side. In your book, you mentioned you really do um, drill down on social media and saying that that's a big cause of it. Could you could you elaborate on that? And then let's take it through the other areas that you think are really causing this. Sure. Uh, well, this so trend. I'll give you three thoughts. So number one. Um, so number one, I think the kind of weaponization of hate in our in the public sphere. So particularly by elected officials, but also people with platforms and positions of authority. 
So you certainly see this in the rise of Donald Trump, who sort of exemplifies this problem. You see it with other elections. Do you think? Do you think that Trump really helped? Uh, was a bit significant part of no- normalizing. I mean, he was the president of the United States, and and unlike any other uh, in modern times or any any time. Um, yeah, I mean, look, he ran for office on a campaign that was, I mean, characterized by casting aspersions at the other Republican candidates in ways that were incredibly out of step with traditional you know presidential campaigns and just political yeah. life he then on the inaugural day he gave a speech that he called american carnage which is about kind of the war take place in our, i mean in our cities and to to quote former president bush who was on the platform in front of the capitol inauguration he turned to president clinton after the speech and said that was some weird bleep. I mean, it was very different. And then we all know everything from the Muslim ban to talking about declaring martial law and using the troops to clear protesters from in front of the White House. And again and again, he employed a kind of rhetoric and immediately reached for kind of the sort of metaphors that, I mean, again, it was just quite different than any of his predecessors. Um, so. And, and a lot of times it was about fear. I mean, it was quite frequently about hating your enemy. And it wasn't about turning the other cheek and the kind of rhetoric that had characterized the Bush White House or prior Republican, let alone Democratic White Houses at all. There was no compassionate conservative. There's only combat and carnage. So, um, I mean, he's not the only one, but I think that the use of hate as a political instrument was new and the kind of language that he used was different and i think it created space in which extremists felt really emboldened and we know that at adl because our center on extremism monitors these people and they were saying patricia in their whatsapp chats and in their message boards we feel emboldened because like talking points from these subreddits and from these other strands were finding their way into the president's remarks or his Twitter feed. So, so number one, I think you have people in positions of authority with platforms using kind of language. And by the way, look at Kanye West just the last couple of weeks. I mean, he's not the president, but he has an enormous platform. He has upwards of 40 million followers between Instagram and Twitter and what Facebook. And uh, he's using the kind of anti-Semitic slurs that we, you have to go back to Henry Ford to find someone as prominent in public life using it in America. Or so the basketball was, star Kyrie Irving during that recently was uh, also. A, a, yeah, I, I mean, I think Kyrie Irving, I would also, I also have taken to task. I think his was more, his was tweeting out that film that was filled with ugliness was bad. But Kyrie, he did something once, whereas Kanye, night after night after night after night, you know, on, on in, in interview after interview in his own social has just been literally going at the Jewish community again and again. So, so number one, you have that, Patricia. Number two, you have social media, which you alluded to, which I think is a super spreader of not just anti-Semitism, all forms of extremism and hate. I mean, social media has allowed the kind of people who previously had to go, you know, meet late at night in a compound in Idaho. Now they can, they're having white supremacist rallies 
anti-Zionist events 24-7 online. And the lack of any filters, the lack of any checks and balances, I think has been to the detriment of, you know, the public, the public good. Excuse me. I, I, I want to go down there more because I know you've, you've, you've even suggested that some certain legislation would be uh, helpful. But just to go back to what you're saying or some of the beginnings of it with these groups, don't, in my view, I wonder if you don't have to go even further back when our politics started to change and we started to make the people on, on the other party the bad guy, where uh -huh. you don't compromise, you don't want to work with them, you don't want to, you know, have dinner with them as they as they used to. I mean, they used to um, socialize with each other in Washington, and then it became a bad thing to do in the 90s. And it, it seems to have dis just degenerated from there, at least insofar as some it is with elected officials. Obviously, what you're describing is something that's now endemic, not only in the political sphere, but in all these other spheres as well. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, I think, and I think it's a fair way of putting it. Look, the truth is, is we are some ways flying the plane. What do they say? Building the plane while we're flying it or something like that. I mean, social media, while it's been 15 years, 17 years since Facebook went out and, you know, we just got our iPhones back in 2008, I think, 2007, 2008. The truth is, is that uh, we're still struggling with these these devices and we're still trying to navigate our way through a world in which our ideas and our conversations and the way we shop and the way we socialize is being shaped by algorithms entirely invisible to us but they are amplifying sometimes the worst elements and they are creating as as eli pariser put it these filter bubbles around us sheltering us in ways again that's not necessarily obvious so this is a difficult time and I think if we don't figure out a more intelligent way to approach this, which means both companies behaving differently, Patricia, and regulators engaging to create some stronger guardrails, I really worry what the long-term effect will be. And you know, I, I think about cars. Imagine if all the cars in America didn't have seatbelts. Imagine if cigarette packs didn't have labeling, we didn't have labeling on cigarettes and public health advisories. I mean. I don't think we'd be better. I think we'd be worse as a society. And I think until we can get kind of warning labels on these and stronger, smarter guardrails around social media, we're, 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 we're doing ourselves a disservice. So do you see those uh, examples of what those guardrails might look like that don't interfere with the First Amendment sure. and concerns I, about free speech? Number one, I think we need to finally reform, if not repeal, Section 230. This is a carve out in the law that exempts the social media companies from any liability for what they publish. I mean, let's be clear, these are social media companies. They're not social phone companies. They're not social, I don't know, wallpaper companies. They are media companies. Their business model is advertising, even if some of them have membership on top of it. And just like the Wall Street Journal, just like The Economist, and just like the ABC, and just like Disney and every other media company on the planet, they should play by the same rules. What does that mean? Section 230, the law which exempts them for any responsibility for what they publish, needs to be changed. They need to be accountable if someone commits. They need to be liable 
if someone commits libel on their platform. Because freedom of speech, which I will ferociously fight for, Patricia, heck, I work here at the ADL, we're a civil rights organization. But freedom of speech is not the freedom to slander people. And freedom of expression isn't the freedom to incite violence. And you are free, in my opinion, to, uh, in, to argue, you know, again, vociferously for your point of view. But that doesn't mean algorithms need to amplify and expand your point of view. This isn't like a normal public square where you stand in the middle of Central Park or some public space on a, literally on a crate. Like when you're speaking to your phone, that gets blasted potentially to hundreds of millions of people instantaneously. Now, as far as I'm concerned, you can, we can all have freedom of speech. I found this on the web. But that doesn't necessarily mean that our freedom of speech needs to be realized instantaneously again, across all media um, without any checks or balances. I just don't agree with that. How are you going to get that passed? It seems like it's uh, they're real bottlenecks in, uh, and maybe on both sides of the aisle. And, and of course, these companies are extremely potent and powerful and they, uh, with, with their lobbyists, they spend millions if not billions on on lobbying how do you how are we going to get that passed are we going to do this with public awareness about this and a, and a, a movement from the people how how would you suggest we get that passed well i think you are like you've just kind of nailed it i mean the bottleneck in washington and the paralysis in our political system makes anything hard even the most common sense things and yet i do think again as you alluded to we need a kind of movement i mean there are people on the left and the right who who can see the difference between right and wrong. And we need, to, we need to help our leaders to kind of draw upon their better angels and to keep in check the worst elements who think that anything goes. So it's not gonna be easy, but I do think there is space, Patricia, and not only space, but I think there's a kind of, I think there's an opportunity. Because I think, you know, this week we're mourning the 10th anniversary of the, 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 the carnage, the massacre at Sandy Hook. The Jewish community is remembering this past week, the third anniversary of the shooting at the kosher supermarket in Jersey City. We're still sort of burying the dead in Colorado Springs after that horrible attack. But you can go back to these awful moments, and these, those are just a few, and you see the role that social media played to spread lies about what happened to share awful videos of some of the tragic events themselves, to, to have enabled the perpetrators to kind of fall down the rabbit holes of propaganda that motivated them to think that these kinds of crimes were somehow okay. I mean, I think people, again, on the political right and the political left need to push leaders in the Republican and Democratic parties to once and for all lock arms against this shared threat, this common enemy. Because not just the indecency of the some of the hateful actors online but the danger they pose to all of us and let me be crystal clear a hundred percent this is not censorship knocking nazis off your platform isn't censorship like who thinks it's censorship that um you know i don't know the jimmy fallon show jimmy fallon doesn't interview nazis on his program that's not censorship who thinks it's censorship that the, the folks at um, 
you know, Anderson Cooper don't put on like ugly racists every night. That isn't censorship. That's called curation because they're sensitive to their audiences and to their role in society. We just need the social media companies to behave the same way. And if the Nazis or the racists don't like it, they can find some other channel. Look, we've had cable access television now for decades that gave forums to these kinds of people to spread their poison. It just didn't need to be broadcast to millions of people. I think the same rule should apply online. So let me ask you, because you actually brought up an interesting thing, that, that there seems to have even been a, uh, a trend of these mass shootings going from being uh, coming from young people who felt that they had been bullied um, to people who hate, whether it's in Buffalo or the Tree of Life Synagogue or Uvalde, that there's now we're seeing that there are some of these mass shootings are more and more crimes that start with hate. Yeah, I mean, I don't have the data to say that definitively. Although I think you can look at the trends and what we read in the news and it feels like that. But again, in a world where our political leaders and people with platforms have weaponized uh, hate and kind of mainstreamed uh, antipathy toward, you know, Americans based on how they pray or who they love or where they're from. In a world in which social media is spreading this stuff without any, uh, with the, there's no one... No way to pump the brakes, if you will, on Twitter and on Facebook, et cetera. And then the third thing is a world in which this, this perceived divide between the haves and the have-nots continues to grow. Look, people are turning on the television and suddenly, you know, crypto is falling apart, which people liked. Because I think there's a sort of cynicism about big business. There's a cynicism about people in positions of authority, about top-down, top-downism, if that was a thing. So I think people, look, the reason why people love social media is they're not getting their news filtered by Walter Cronkite or Peter Jennings or Anderson Cooper anymore, right? You can get your stuff bottoms up. The reason why crypto had such appeal is you don't have to go to the big banks. You can you build trust from the bottom up. The reason why influencers and creators on social and on platforms like YouTube have, or Etsy have so much cachet is because people don't want... Hollywood to tell them who to believe. They want to believe who they want to believe. So you have this, this kind of, um, this, uh, this weak, this trust, the bonds of trust that used to keep society together are like weakening. And that's created space for new voices, for bottom-up systems. But when markets fail, like we're seeing with crypto, and when government fails, and there are these gaps in the way society is supposed to work, People look for look elsewhere for answers. And that's when, right. again, a populist or a demagogue can step in and say, you know what, it's not your fault or this is fault, it's the Jews' fault or it's the right. Democrats' fault. And so I think the environment we're in, we seem to be on this, we seem to have an accelerating velocity of, of problems because the systems aren't working, trust is weakening, and again, I think that makes people susceptible to stereotyping and scapegoating in particular. Well, it's it's certainly trust has certainly been um, eroded by the 2008 Great Recession, 
uh, it was eroded by the war in Iraq that didn't seem to be <laughs> yeah. anything good. Um, and 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 we did think, and then there were so many people who had such hope that w- with everybody having the opportunity to get on their phone and connect to each other in a, a completely uh, free way, that this would be very empowering for regular people. And, and in many ways it has. But as you say, there's there's it's it's got a real problem there when it's unfiltered when it when there's no uh guardrails when there's when there's no regulations for it is is the um is the so so we you're saying we really need to make a movement to to create some kind of liability guardrails for social media well, yeah, I think a way to solve for it again is to is to revisit Section 230. Now, I'll, I'll be clear, there's some merit to it. I mean, the the reason why we have the Internet kind of ecosystem we have today, Patricia, in part is because of Section 230. I mean, Wikipedia, for example, or the the reviews on Yelp, for example, in a world in which Yelp was held responsible if someone didn't like a review, a restaurant did, and they tried to sue Yelp, like you just wouldn't exist, or Wikipedia as the free resources wouldn't exist, or YouTube, though you know it might not exist. So there are real challenges with it. On the other hand, it needs to, again, we need better guardrails to prevent hate from proliferating the way it does. I mean, simple, it's just simple. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I think- I'm just when curious, we, when you, when, I'm, I'm part of, go ahead, Jonathan. When we talk about a movement, what I'm talking about is an effort to get legislators to focus on this kind of thing, to address these issues once and for all. Well, when you look at, when you looked at it in your book um, and you, I mean, part of what you looked at was how this is going on across the world. Yeah. Uh, this is a trend in democracies and in, in, with right-wing extremism in Italy and France and in Hungary and Poland. Um do you also see that as a function of the political leaders and and th- this nasty combination of uh, irresponsible political leadership and social media? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, look, these issues are not unique to the United States. We're seeing them around the world. Um, whether it's the rise of authoritarianism in Hungary, in Turkey, um, it's the 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 trend of sectarian division, again, in parts of Latin America, parts of the Middle East. I mean, it's really shocking. So part of the need to address these issues is not just because we care about our society, although we should. I mean, I'm a big believer in American exceptionalism, but it's also because these things threaten to undermine the whole, you know, the the civilization as we know it. And I'm not exaggerating. I mean, a world in which nobody accepts facts as people can't agree on basic facts in which every election becomes subject to kind of partisan recrimination and people don't agree to the peaceful transfer of power. Those kinds of things can be very damaging to the health and sustainability of societies. Well, it also seems as though we're not, we're not remembering our history, certainly European history. Um, Yeah, I mean, yeah, totally. So when you're in your book, you speak about American berserk. 
Yeah. How is that part of American culture? What do you? What is American bizarre? Well, I think American bizarre is this idea of like, what does it look like when things start to unravel? And what does it look like when the kind of sectarianism, again, that's riven parts of Europe or Asia or Africa actually comes here? And again, we've seen other countries beset by civil war. This country survived a, a difficult period in the 1860s. But today we have a population that's armed. You know, there's something like 395 million guns in a country of roughly 340 million people. So we're armed to the teeth. That's different than before. Again, we have these separate kind of media ecosystems. You can go all day, listen to right-wing talk radio, read right-wing media, get right-wing tweet or social, or left-wing talk radio, left-wing, like the podcasts, if you will, left-wing blogosphere, left-wing information flows, and these hardly the twain shall meet. So American berserk is like, what happens when things actually come apart at the seams? And I think, you know, there's that famous expression that someone asked Ben Franklin about whether the, I think it was the Continental Congress had been completed. They said, well, you have a republic if you can keep it. I mean, I think we've always known that these forces were somewhat buried within the American psyche. Just today, the pathologies that are, have, that are all out there are allowing things to come forth, that it burst forth in a way it never did before. And that's what's so scary. Well, so I think the other point of the American berserk in my book is that, you know, I think for many of us, I don't know about you, Patricia, but I was born here. It's the only country I've ever known. I've always assumed everything here would work out. But, you know, I look at my grandfather, who was a survivor from Holocaust survivor from Germany, who never thought, never imagined that one day his whole world would fall apart. And the only country he ever had known, the only country he had ever loved would turn on him, regard him as an enemy of the state, destroy everything that he knew, murder all of his family and friends, and force him to come here with nothing but as a refugee, as happened. He never would have guessed that one day his grandchildren, like me and my sibling and my cousins, would be born in America. Never, when he was a young person. He would have thought Germany. So flash forward, my wife and her family are from Iran. They came, they came to the United States as political refugees in 1988. Jews from Iran, to be more specific. And that's the only country they ever knew. And they never would have guessed that one day, that the, the, after the rise of Khomeini and the Islamic fascism of the, the fascism of the Islamic Republic, that it would destroy everything they ever loved. You know, force them to flee as refugees, and they came here. I mean, I think my father-in-law never would have guessed that his grandchildren, like my kids and my nieces and nephews, wouldn't have been born in this country. When he was a young man, he would have thought they'll be born in Iran. Because the only country he ever knew was Iran. The only country my grandfather ever knew was Germany. Until it turned on them, they could have never predicted it. So as I flash forward to myself, what's the American berserk? It's a world in which my grandchildren are born somewhere else. because. Things here suddenly unravel. Now, again, it seems unimaginable, but so it seemed for my grandfather, and so it seemed for my father-in-law. So recent history tells us that, again, although I, I am a profound patriot, and I believe this country is the greatest democracy the world's ever known, but my own history tells me it is 
it would be um, kind of negligent for me not to realize that this can go away like that if we don't fight for what we have and don't use all of our energy to preserve it and to sustain it so that we can share it and pass it on to the next generation. So that's why I think when I imagine an American berserk, a world in which our country, our communities are torn apart from the inside, I know that sounds like a fantasy maybe to some people or a science fiction movie or some dystopian novel, but to me it sounds like you know, my family's history and I can't afford to let that happen here. That is a really moving example of what, what, what we have to watch out for is, is what you your uh, wife's family uh, experience and what your own forebears experience. I mean, that's why we have to keep the memories of those things alive um, and understand when things fall apart. I mean, I don't think it's it's just hard to understand how, you know, even, even in Russia where he could, a, a leader like Putin could say, there are Nazis in Ukraine <laughs> yeah. start a war. I'm sure the Ukrainians never thought that would happen. No, it, it could happen here. And of course, you you outlined that to some degree in your looking at the Oath Keepers. Do you want to dive into that a little bit more? I mean, it it seemed like a a, a lot of these, you know, as you said, they're in different uh, positions of responsibility. It seems like a lot of them are in Florida. Um, do you want to go into that at all? Well, sure. I mean, the Oath Keepers, I think your your listeners know, is one of the more prominent armed militia groups in the United States. Um, and these armed militia groups for years have been prioritizing uh, their growth through recruiting active and retired law enforcement and military as a way to get access to resources, to get access to training, to bring in respectability, whatever. And you saw, sort of saw this on display with January the 6th, where the Oath Keepers, you know, marched in a very organized kind of like phalanx up the steps, very visible if you've seen the video, and then executed military maneuvers in the building to try to secure the perimeter, try to pursue legislators, really horrible stuff. Um, well, earlier, oh no, it was last year, I don't remember quite how, but a, someone within the Oath Keepers organization inadvertently released their membership roles. I think it was on a signal chat. One of my analysts, and we have dozens of analysts here at ADL who monitor extremist groups, who participate in the chats and are on the message boards and actively involved. One of my analysts got hold of that membership list before it was pulled back. And we spent about a year analyzing 38,000 names, doing public record searches, doing social media kind of surveys, using other investigative techniques. And the team was able to identify thousands of names among the 38,000 total who were active members of the Oath Keepers, Patricia, who were active in retired law enforcement, active in retired military, elected officials or candidates for, you know, candidates for office, EMTs, teachers, um, all kinds of people from different walks of life. I mean, it was fairly stunning at the breadth and the depth of their ability to penetrate different fields. Now, do, when do we they, released- Excuse me, Jonathan, do they have something that they sign on to, a certain ideology yeah. that, that's implanted in their, in their propaganda? 
Yeah, I mean, so the Oath Keepers, they're just, again, they're this far-right militia group, and they're called the Oath Keepers because they, in theory, sign on to an oath that they are going to, you know, protect the Constitution, um, even if there are those who would somehow seek to undermine it, which means they are willing to go after... Um, people in positions of authority, members of the police, et cetera, if they feel they are not um, being true to their constitutional oath. Um, but look, what's scary about them is, you know, of that, I, what, 38,000 some odd names, I'm guessing only several thousand are active, met paying, engaged members, Patricia. I don't think all 38,000 are, but like, look, you had people like Wendy Rogers, who's a state senator in Arizona. You had um, people like, um, what was his name? Um, Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania who ran for governor, who did events with the Oath Keepers. We had them showing up to like school board meetings to protest against curriculum that they felt was whatever. They had problems with for whatever particular reason. Uh, so I think all that's pretty scary. And a number of them, again, were found guilty of conspiracy as it related to the January 6th event. So one of the reasons why the Oath Keepers are so dangerous is the head of the Oath Keepers, who was found guilty of seditious conspiracy, is this guy by the name of, um, what is his name? It is uh, Stuart Rhodes. He's a, and Stuart Rhodes is really pretty problematic. You know, he's a Yale Law School graduate. He's a former U.S. Army paratrooper. He worked for Congressman Ron Paul, who's the well-known, he's since retired. His son, Rand Paul, is a, is a junior senator from Kentucky. Ron Paul was a very libertarian member of the Republican delegation of the Texas, Republican in the Texas delegation in the House for many years. Um, yeah, he's a bad guy. <laughs> and yet, like, he's leading this group. So it's, it's very, very troubling. And again, I think it just underscores why we have our work really cut out for us. It feels like the country is so divided. I mean, we know we, can, we talk to each other. Do they hear what you're saying? That's a very good question. Um, I think you are putting your finger on one of the most challenging things that we're feeling right now. So, look, it does feel like our country is more divided than at any point in recent memory. I uh, find it very worrisome when every issue, every issue on the sort of public agenda is in, in a kind of reductionist way, narrow to is a right-wing issue or a left-wing issue. What's the right-wing or left-wing position on it? Who cares? We have genuinely difficult problems in front of us, and we need to dig a little deeper than how do we, what lever are we pulling in the, in the voting booth to figure out how do we solve these big problems? But sometimes I worry about that because I don't think we're doing such a great job there. Did you take any solace from um, the midterm elections? And I don't know if this is something that you really want to comment on, but it seems as though there was a moderating 
sensibility about it that people were to some degree rejecting extremists, not all of them, obviously. There are 150 deniers, election deniers that were uh, back in office, uh, among others. But um, did you take any solace that maybe there were more people starting to turn away from this extremist talk? I mean, I think it's true, and it was really encouraging that a number of election deniers lost. That was very important. I mean, the idea of people running for office and saying as they run that they deny the office's legitimacy or that they plan to contest the election, I mean, it's just, it's a little bit bewildering. So I think that was a good thing, Patricia. But I think, on the other hand, these elections seem to become more and more fraught. And it's remarkable how divided the country, how evenly divided the country is. There's a lot of talk about Herschel Walker, who had a runoff against, um, what's his name, Senator Warnock, right? A couple weeks right. ago. Yeah, I mean, Senator Warnock won, but he won by like a point, uh, maybe 100 basis points or 200 basis points. I mean, he didn't win by some huge margin. And I, I think it's safe to say that Herschel Walker was not the strongest candidate. I don't think I'm breaking any. <laughs> I don't think I'm breaking any news yeah. when I say that. But I, I make that point only draw out the fact that what I worry about. It was good that the elections demonstrated that the public would reject people who themselves reject elections. But what I worry about is just how divided we seem to be. So I just again, I think. Look, I think dialogue and 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 uh, debate and dissent are really healthy disciplines for a, for a vibrant and robust democracy but when dissent becomes demonization of the other side when debate kind of degrades into a kind of um um dehumanization of the other side like that's troubling so yes to debate and dissent no to demonization and dehumanization but I'm afraid sometimes that's where it feels like we are, and that's really worrisome. It certainly does. I, I, I see that Biden, President Biden said recently that he that our intelligence communities have, have deemed white supremacist groups as the most dangerous threat to our national security. Do you want yeah. to speak to that at all? Well, look, as we talked a few minutes ago, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, there's other groups like the Three Percenters and lots of smaller armed militia groups. These folks are a clear and present danger to, the, to our democracy. The willingness to use weapons against their fellow Americans, their desire to engage in vigilantism, you know, and uh, it's, it's terrifying. And we've seen a degree of coordination amongst these groups. You know, and by the way, they're a global terror threat too. The degree of, of, of um, coordination we're seeing between white supremacists and armed militia elements in the United States with actors in Europe, like Scandinavia, Central Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand is scary. So I do think they are a clear and present danger. We are tracking, I mean, last year the ADL gave well over a thousand tips to law enforcement about threats that we detected based on our monitoring um, so I, I think it is indeed very troubling, and uh, I think we have to take it incredibly seriously. I'm glad to see that Secretary Mayorkas, Attorney General um, 
uh, Merrick Garland and Secre even Secretary, uh, what's his name, the Defense Secretary, uh, Lloyd Austin, are all giving this a level of attention that we believe the problem deserves. My team works with the FBI and other state and local officials on a daily basis, trying to avert threats before they materialize into real world violence. So I think he's, the FBI director is right to focus on this. We need all of the federal government and all of our law enforcement agencies to be resourced to the problem, to be trained up in how to deal with hate and to be engaged in a very collaborative way, Patricia, with civil society, actors like the ADL and others. We're not the only game in town. We need all of us to work together because ultimately, you know, Patricia, you can't arrest your way out of hate. You just can't. You ultimately have to change hearts and minds. And that will be a whole of society approach. It will demand the attention, not just of government, although that's important, and law enforcement. It will, it necessitates the involvement of civil society. And it also requires the participation of businesses. The private sector has an important role to play, not just social media companies, but I would say all spheres um, to help us to, you know, as a country, to approach this with the collective wisdom that I know we have and the and the the energy and the imagination we're going to need. Because again, this isn't just about what people say and what they because that's censorship. It's about what they do, and what they do is a reflection of how they feel. So we've just got to realize that radicalization is a threat to us all. The prejudice and the and the resentment that can feed it are forces that we need to try to go upstream to kind of curb. And I think with the right approach about education and tolerance and pluralism, we can get there. Well, on that note, that's a that's really so important. Um, and and you and the work that the ADL does is so important. And you've been an well, extraordinary leader, shown extraordinary leadership there. So we thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We'll work with you in any way we can. And we thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for well, your for your tremendous efforts. Again, I'm grateful for the time. So thank you. And I just look forward to continuing the conversation with you and your listeners in the in the months and years ahead. Thank you. And look looking forward to your next book. But this <laughs> one we, we gotta we got to solve, solve the problems with this one. Thank you so much. We'll try. Okay, take care.